This is loudspeaker. Please don't go. I need you so. I. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the podcast about finding joy through feminism and living your best feminist life. I'm your host, Adrian Vandervalk, and I am very honored today to share an interview with a scholar, writer, and activist who has been a politically engaged feminist for over 40 years, Zila Eisenstein. Zila is a professor at Ithaca College and the author of 12 books and a prolific writer in general. She has written some great articles about women and COVID, for example, which I will link in our show notes. She is also a white woman who critiques neoliberal white feminism, which is part of the reason I sought her out, because that is not as common a position as you might think. As someone who is always actively working to guard against the lure of white feminism myself, I decided to reach out to Zila after reading her book, Abolitionist Socialist Feminism. We talked a bit about abolitionist feminism in season three of Feminist Hot Dog. Big shout out to Steph Bernal Martinez and Ashley Edwards, two guests who have come on the show to talk about this. And it's something that has been at the center of my own political thinking and development for the last couple of years. And when I read Zila's book, it brought together several concepts and helped me clarify my thinking in a really useful way. And I just want to read you one of the passages that I bookmarked. Imagine a revolution that seeks to end all sexual violence and that this revolution is as essential as one that respects the climate and the earth and humanity. Is not the rape of the earth by oil refining with little regard to the climate and its warming and its extremes connected to the wanton, hostile mindset toward women's bodies? Would ending this violence disable racist, heterosexist, capitalist patriarchy? If we end the violence against everything from women's bodies to extractive industries, we flip the planet toward justice and radical abolitionism. As racial and sexual inequality and environmental plunder have increased to devastate this globe, I have found renewed purpose in connecting the struggle for socialism and anti-violence feminist commitments. This explicitly targets the sexual politics of violence that resides inside racial and economic oppression. It targets the carceral state with its prison system and policing apparatus. My theorizing point here, abolitionism must embrace revolutionary anti-violence, anti-racist feminisms with bodily and earth justice for all. So I think that clip can help you understand why after I read this book, I was really excited to reach out to Zila and even more excited when she agreed to come on the show. So please enjoy my interview with Zila Eisenstein. I like to begin by asking people about their feminist development and evolution and milestones as a way to get some context for your work and your perspective. So can you tell us about when you began identifying as a feminist and some of the most important experiences that have shaped your feminism? Well, it, it, that's just a really complex question. I was brought up in a communist household, so I was brought up politically. So I was brought up with a consciousness of 
both uh, socialism, communism, but primarily anti-racism. And uh, at that time, really, most people who were anti-racist in this country during the Jim Crow period were in the Communist Party. It was more an anti-racist party than it was focused on economic issues, although, of course, that was part of it. So anyhow, I had three fabulous sisters, and we grew up in this very intense political life, both of my parents. So I grew up, you know, Saturday mornings were um, being pulled out of bed to get on a picket line in front of Woolworths to open up the, the lunch counters. And the sense of not having a choice about being a person who lived in the world politically consciously was just deeply embedded in me. I was also brought up by parents who uh, deeply believed that us four girls, so you know, could could do and be whatever we wanted to. But the articulation of that as feminist uh, really was that was not really articulated yet. I mean, we hadn't had the women's movement here in the United States fully. I mean, my father was definitely uh, felt as so feminism when later in life, my big arguments with him, not like most people, you know, between them being liberal and their parents being conservative or whatever. In my household, it was why I needed to articulate feminism as not derivative of socialism, but as a co-equal argument. So... By time I was in college, it was the Vietnam War, I was very involved against the war, and at that time was also the beginnings of the women's movement in the late 60s and early 70s. And um, I was never part of the mainstream women's movement, you know, which was defined primarily as white, hetero, etc. You know, I was never a fan of Betty Friedan. I mean, if you, any of you read my books, you know, there are chapters critiquing her and white feminism, etc. And my earliest uh, involvements with the Vietnam War brought me into more contemporary anti-racist movements. And then as well, the way that so many of us who were leftist women I really felt as though feminism needed its own articulation. My development as as a feminist, as an anti-racist socialist feminist, as always believing that you need um, adjectives to clarify what kind of feminist you are. Um, I lived through the whole period intellectually where feminism was pluralized to feminisms, you know, to the point where, you know, in the last, 15 years of my life, I would say that as a white woman, I feel like it is absolutely crucial to say that I am an anti-racist feminist because otherwise the assumption is that as a white woman, I'm a white middle-class feminist, which, which I am not. The complexity of politics is to me absolutely expressed through the way um, someone defines themselves as a feminist. It's not a singular, it's never a singular construct. So much of the work that I've done is really to say that kind of the rule of politics and power is to always mystify itself. Once you are, are seen, once the power is visible, it is at risk, okay? So the idea of opening the lens 
to misogyny and patriarchy inside racism and capitalism. That, that to me is to begin to articulate its demise or at least its critique, okay? So right now we're at a hugely interesting moment because before COVID, there were cracks in the global empire that were revealing more and more of sexual violence and patriarchy through, throughout the globe, every single country. So COVID has just absolutely exposed this fully. And so we're in a moment that is just hugely demanding. Well, I, I agree. And I really love what you said about kind of opening the aperture of misogyny and sexual violence within these other sort of ideological contexts. That's is going to stick with me. I want to go back to something that you said about anti-racism a little bit earlier. One of the things that I've explored on this show a lot is the role of anti-racist white women and what that means and what it doesn't mean. You know, sometimes people will ask me, well, why focus on white women and not white people in, in general? And part of my answer is, well, you know, I'm I'm a woman, I have a feminist podcast, this is kind of my lens. But I, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to it than that. And I'm, I'm curious if you could speak to that question. Why, why are white women in particular, a site where we could be focusing some anti-racist energy right now? Well, first of all, I mean, I think that specificity always allows you to see more. I mean, I actually have argued, you know, always in my teaching, but in my writing as well, that the assumption usually is, is the more general you speak, the more inclusive you are. And really what we can see politically, historically, is that actually the universal as inclusive is a total lie. And that what has history been, the demand to make the universal more specific, whether you're talking then about a black female or a white woman, a white female, so to me, first of all, white men, I mean, everything is about white men. I would never, why would you, why would you want to stay on that layer? That, that has allowed the obfuscation of women and of female activity throughout history. The patriarchal lens means that men are always centered. So, you know, I'll decenter them every moment, chance I get. For me, when I say, uh, let's focus on white women as in the struggle against racism, well, first of all, if you don't understand the way that white women have been used to support racism in the whole history of lynching, in the history of even the language and uh, demands around rape. So there is a specific history that if that is uncovered, the duplicity, the complicity, and the rejection of that then what you have is white men will have to come along. But we, we really are the architects here of what could allow for a, a major assault against racism. You've spoken to this a little bit already, but do you want to say anything more about why feminism still feels so relevant to you? Yeah, well, you know, I don't, I don't like that question in the sense that relevant, I mean, how could it not be relevant? As long as you have female bodies that the world is struggling to control, you know, uh, Kentucky, just the, the last two abortion clinics were closed. I mean, what the hell? You know, <laughs> so the idea here of relevant, it just is, I mean, that is the language of really saying that the core of 
politics and political struggle, the struggle to really be able to dominate in terms of who has power and not, that female bodies, and particularly female bodies of color, black and brown women, the history of the domination there, you know, until we're all free, are you kidding? Relevance, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying. For feminism to be irrelevant, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't have a, a population, you know, like it's just, it really, on some level, it decenters the both uniqueness and necessity of really understanding what the struggle of um, patriarchy, historically and contemporary, is about. Yeah, and I think it also reduces feminism to the idea like that, that it only responds to like equal opportunity for education or job. Like it narrows it to this incredibly myopic way of thinking about what feminism is ever for. And so, yeah, thank you for uh, that passionate answer. I love that. <laughs> Let's talk about your book or your most recent book, because that's what led me to you and, and inspired me to reach out to you. The book is called Abolitionist Socialist Feminism. I really liked the way in the book that you laid out why these three ideas are linked together for you. Do you mind articulating that for us just briefly? Well, basically, you know, I, the abolitionism is to articulate the need to destroy white supremacy and and recreate a, a different way of being and in terms of socialism that is basically focusing on the fact that everyone has the human right you know to food and clothing and health care in other words that the the economic necessities must be met and that uh, socialism the the priority is really to create an equality that allows people to thrive. And the feminism part is the fact that societies have always been structured through and around and with patriarchy and misogyny. And to the extent that all three are simultaneous and always have been, they have never been separate. So to the extent that that's the case, you, you have to deal with the totality, even if you take parts of it and pieces of it. But the question of the book that just keeps reappearing and keeps reappearing now um, in the moments that we have been in for the last couple of years is why is it that when people are talking about democracy that the first thing that is always silenced or not recognized is the lack of recognition of how misogyny uh, smothers and limits women across the globe. And so one of the things that in this book that irritates me so much, and I mean, I pull at Piketty, an economist that everyone was raving about a couple of years ago for his brilliance of, you know, what is capitalism, but he never mentions the slave trade as one of the historical sustenances of capitalism and definitely not the black enslaved woman, nor does his notion of economy uh, focus on domestic labor and the non-paid labor of women across the globe, whether you're 
carrying water or collecting firewood. So the idea of just the way that by certain conversations, the erasure of misogyny in women are reproduced silently all the time. Or another example is so many people embrace the present Pope as being one of the most radical popes ever, being so much for equality. And here he is someone who, when pressed on it, has said, no, you know, uh, women cannot be part of the priesthood and no, abortion is not acceptable. So excuse me, radical? Yeah, by what definition? You know, yeah. So the idea here is though how we are made so absent in so many of the conversations. And the idea is people ask over and over again, why doesn't socialism work? Well, maybe it doesn't work because you haven't really gotten rid of the foundation of misogyny and racism that are still left constructed in that economic system. Or why doesn't feminism by itself work? Well, maybe, you know, capitalist feminism, what does that mean? that you get to run the race or you want equality with men? Well, you know, which men would you like equality with, right? I mean, all I'm doing is specifying the questions along these three frameworks. And then um, I do think that part of this whole issue, you know, is the question of how these ways of thinking also silence the question of the environment in which we live and which is being destroyed or how ableism just absolutely ignores people with disabilities. But the, the idea here is to always open our lens to be as specific as possible and to know that we can't ever get to the full statement of it. That, that just makes you humble as you work towards trying to have a bigger concept of freedom and equality. It's not until you start, I think, thinking and talking in this way that you can understand why uh, democracy does not work. Because most people, when they use that word democracy, they mean Western democracy, which means liberal or capitalist democracy, or I should say today, neoliberal, or maybe even fascist democracy. Democracy is very malleable. You can put a lot of things with it. You can put misogyny with it. I'd like to talk a little bit about what we've seen in terms of this extraordinary reaction to the most recent iteration of the Black liberation movement. Why in this moment are we seeing so many people either waking up or at least feeling inspired to take action if they've if they've already been involved in this? So I do think that there has been um, more and more development, more exposure of the crisis around racism for you know at least the last decade. Um, more and more work um, on decarceration and reparative justice. The black women leading uh, much of the, uh, that struggle, Angela Davis, Ruthie Gilmore, for years, you know. A political work, it, it's long and it's hard and it takes time. And that, that was really, that has been in process for a long time. What I do, and I've written about this um, as well, I do think that COVID really was a, a first time that 
white people absolutely felt as though they were being betrayed by their government. Uh, black people are used to being betrayed by their government all the time. But this was a very frightening thing. I mean, COVID uncovered all of the crises that ha are in place in this country. It didn't create most of our crises, but it surely did show how completely in crisis our medical system has been. The academy, which is really being challenged, uh, you know, and, and uh, is in the throes of all kinds of upheaval, that's, that's a good 20-year struggle coming. I've been a part of that. So the idea that here comes COVID and all of a sudden, you know, the economy comes to a halt, it just completely shows the people who are working harder than hell for scraps of money, you know, and that people who can live their lives in middle-class fashion and not really recognize all the people they depend on <laughs> to allow them to live their life. So I think white people were frightened by the disease, um, were scared of dying, but also were really upheaved by recognizing all the other people and structures that are in place that allow us to live. So the thing about COVID is that it really reveals a socialist truth, that no individual is not a part of a collective. We live in a society that constantly focuses on the individual, but all of a sudden you realize you don't wear a mask, not only are you maybe harming someone else, but you might be harming yourself. There was, there's no distinction here. So, I mean, when people are fighting that mask, they are fighting a political consciousness. That is true. The same way that, you know, so many middle-class people uh, decided that they needed to have people pick up their food, you know, and, um, and do their shopping for them. So me, I, I actually don't support that. I, I really believe that you don't have people doing what you are not willing to do yourself. The fact that we have so much horrific death in our country right now, that actually I don't think that most people are feeling that pain. You know, you really have to open yourself to really think about the horrific, if you haven't been touched yourself individually. So, I mean, all of this, comes together as a statement of you you just have all of this chaos a good chaos you know that then um white people who are not used to having to live with all of this were more open to recognizing that um black and brown people live with this as a, as a daily thing and that actually that racism is as much a pandemic as is covid and only white people were able to, I mean, they, they were frightened of the pandemic of COVID, whereas black people had already lived with the fear of racism. So the choices there are, you, I think as a white person, you really need to be careful about how protective you are of yourself and how that can implicate you in supporting the pandemic of racism. And of course, I, you know, there are many women that I work with internationally 
who say that COVID has really exacerbated the pandemic of sexual violence. Mm. Everyone was sent to their home, right? Out of the public space to your home. But you, you need a home or you need a house or you need some place to go. But if that place is an unsafe place and that's where you are, you know, if you're a child suffering incest or a wife who gets battered, I mean, that you have nowhere to go. And so many of the supportive networks for battered women just couldn't, you know, it was just almost impossible. It was impossible from what I was told to keep up with the need and also the difficulty of people even having enough privacy to be able to call for help. But, but again, the, the point here is that the way that these issues are completely multiplied, particularly for people who are houseless or homeless, and then on top of that with COVID, I mean, the truth is, is that most of the questions and support systems that we should be doing for people who are houseless, that should have been done before COVID. So COVID just made it impossible. I'm curious to know, I mean, you've been doing this work for such a long time. And how do you stay hopeful? How do you stay engaged? Well, you know, staying engaged, that, that, that's the easy part for me. I mean, I never think of not being engaged. It's, it's just too painful to not be, to look at this rather than to feel like you're doing whatever it is that you can. I remember being kind of some of the lowest I've ever been in my life. Um, right around the beginning of COVID. And, um, and I kept just searching, why? Well, what is going on, Zila? And then I realized it was that, you know, we were all, the way it was being talked about and done, it was like we were all waiting. You know, we were waiting for, we don't know exactly what, but when I started to realize that, how can you be waiting for the people who are in charge here? They're not, they're not interested in, helping any of us. So we just, we just all need to not wait, you know? And that's kind of been a real political mantra for me is whatever you do, you don't wait, you know? And even though everything feels unknown and uncertain, you have to have a plan and go forward. And you can change your plan on a dime, but you have to have one. And so, you know, the different feminists that I work with. I mean, we have different sites on different days, different things that, that you're working on right now. There is enormous work to do, you know, and that the agenda that so many of us do want, a really serious anti-racist, feminist, post-COVID <laughs> agenda, right? one that really does focus on the health of our bodies and the health of the planet. I'm curious to know, as someone who has been in the movement for a long time too, where how do you feel about the ways that feminists are converging right now? You've spoken to this a little bit, but I want to invite you to say more if you want to, or if there's anything that you, you know, feel like you've, learned that you would like to share with some of our listeners? Because I've had a lot of listeners ask me to invite women on who, who were part of the movement in the 70s and the 80s um, and are, are really kind of craving some generational wisdom. Well, 
You know, I, I, I do think that when I was younger, I was somewhat more dogmatic, you know, and I wasn't looking for, uh, or I didn't know how to really enrich the sharedness of difference, you know, and, and I, I do feel like there are many different modalities right now of feminism. And I'm not, I'm not at all a fan of uh, neoliberal feminism, which basically is an opportunity structure where Hillary uh, Clinton always would say, you know, we want to break the, the glass ceilings. And in some of my critiques of her, you know, I said, well, uh, some of us want to get out of the basement so that we might be able to even see the ceiling. So let's just, let's really deal with the now. So, I mean, at this moment, I am hoping that the fact that, that I think it's like 74% of essential workers are women in this country, you know, whether it's in terms of cleaning the hospitals or being nurses or being, uh, you know, uh, working in supermarkets, that the, the labor that women do is essential to this country, that the crisis of COVID and schools being closed, et cetera, has completely exposed the sexual hierarchy of the division of labor, and that most women are the ones picking up a lot of the teaching of their children as schools are in the home. So what, we're, what we are seeing is from different vantage points and across class lines, across racial lines, COVID has created a kind of egalitarianism, even if it still is hierarchical, all right? And so, as someone who really has been in this struggle for it's, you know, it's like four decades. I've seen such different stages of it, but this, actually I don't like that word stage, but there have been these different historical moments that the Vietnam War defined particular priorities. Uh, the Iraq War really defined particular realities to, to deal with. I remember being very politically active around the Abu Ghraib period where women were in, getting in our military a lot. And my argument was that there is no thing called feminist militarism. So the long sweep of history that I feel like I've been in, it doesn't feel repetitive because there are these very different moments. And yet at the same time, the fact that white women have been so slow to really become articulately anti-racist, what the way that too many white women voted for Trump, that to me has, has been a dismal moment for me. And I think that, but then after coming out of just feeling so bad about it, it radicalized me further to really have really no patience with a kind of liberalism that assumes that you can find a middle place or that there is common ground. And so I guess, you know, in terms of this long haul, instead of having the struggles make me pessimistic, I, I feel like right now, that I have continued to be radicalized by the promissory of what a complex feminism can, can offer. 
what is important, particularly for young people, um, and I mean really young, you know, people in their 20s who are trying to find themselves politically, you know, in this moment or, and when I say find yourself politically, it means that, you know, that you're trying to come to terms with the fact that power is everywhere. It's both dispersed and it's concentrated and that you're trying to find your place in it and how you think it makes sense. You know, that you don't wake up and know who you are. You have to struggle to find who you are and to try to act on that. I mean, I think you get this sense a little bit from this newest book of mine, but if you, if you were to read several of the different books, you would just see that my ideas change, you know, that there isn't a moment that you feel like you're finished. So if, if you're never finished, it's fine for you to always be beginning as well. So, I mean, I do in, in terms of just young people I've been working with recently, you know, I do, it, intimidation is not a good thing. You know, just be, you, you need to find your courage. Everyone needs to find their courage. And, and I'm depending on young women to find their courage for, for the rest of us. I really encourage all of you to follow Zila's work and to read her writing. She is an academic, but she writes very accessibly and for a lot of progressive and international publications. So even just dipping a toe into her body of work and her activism, you will learn so much and also find new ways to think about your own work and activism. I know I have. I want to extend a huge thank you to Zila and to all of you for joining me for this episode. I can't believe we are nearing the end of season four of this podcast. I want to shout out to my wonderful patrons. Thank you so much for helping keep Feminist Hot Dog going. And if you are not a patron and you'd like to be one, just go to patreon.com and search for the name of the show. Our theme music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. Thanks again so much for listening. And as always, love yourself and love your buns. Goodbye. This is Loudspeaker.